Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I'm your host as always, Robbie Burke, and we are brought to you by upmentorship.com, one of the top strength and conditioning resources available online today. This episode's guest is Pat Davidson. Pat has a PhD in exercise physiology and has previously been a professor of exercise science at Brooklyn College and Springfield College in the US. Pat has an extensive background in strongman training, wrestling and martial arts. Pat is one of the most intelligent and well-read individuals I've had the pleasure to interact with on the show. Pat is one of those rare individuals who just realizes that everything is connected and just to put it simply, Pat gets it. On this episode, Pat and I discussed many topics including Pat's background and influences the good and not so good things that Pat sees within the physical preparation profession, Pat's training philosophy, Pat goes into great detail into long-term athletic development, Pat then goes into great detail with regards to energy system development, we discuss the genesis of Pat's hypertrophy building program, Mass, what Pat considers to be the biggest mistakes that he's learned from so far in his career, Pat's top advice to all the listeners, and so much more. This was a monster podcast, guys, and the fact that it was such a long episode, I've decided to split it up into three parts to make it more digestible for you guys. So I hope you really enjoy part one. Okay, Pat Davidson, it is an absolute pleasure and an absolute honor to have you come on to my podcast. You're somebody who I've been wanting to get on the show for quite some time. But just, Pat, for the listeners who may not be too familiar with who you are, just fill us in on your background. Sure, uh, and, and Robbie, thanks. I uh, really appreciate you having me on here today. It's uh, it's always fun to be able to talk shop and, and do these things and, and meet people that I've seen in Facebook land but haven't met in person or haven't had a chance to really like interact with a, a, a lot. So, uh, you know, it's funny. Like, There's been a lot of great guys in New York City, and it's like we never see each other even though we, we work like a mile away from each other. Yeah. It's just too hectic. We literally have to like go to other states for conferences to be able to hang out. But it's like some of my favorite things in the world are actually just being able to like uh, hang out and talk shop with other guys that care about this stuff. But um, all right, a little background on myself. Um, you know, I uh, I have been. Let's see. I found out that like strength and conditioning, or I don't even know what we call it anymore. You hear like performance specialist or whatever, uh, the business of, of training. I, I really didn't know it was like a real business or, or industry until 2004. Uh, you know, prior to that I had been, um, a history geek. Like I had been, I got my undergrad in history and, um, you know, at that time, there were no history jobs available, like for teaching. So it was kind of like, I don't really know what to do. So I found out that, that um, actually being able to work as a strength and conditioning coach was a thing in 2004. So I just kind of, I dove into that. And um, it was a situation where I had a good enough GPA and GRE scores to get into a random um, master's program at uh, Bridgewater State College in Massachusetts. And uh, from there, I really just fell in love with it and continued on. And I ended up getting a PhD in exercise physiology at Springfield College. Um, And after that, I was able to start working as a professor. I went to Brooklyn College. And then after a couple of years, uh, had a great opportunity to go back to Springfield College uh, and work as a professor there. Uh, I worked as a professor at Springfield for three years, and following that, I, um, I left for an interesting job in the private sector at Peak Performance in New York City. Um, and and uh, really, like, Peak didn't, didn't work out for some weird, like, business-oriented reasons, and now I'm, I'm in New York City looking to, um, to kind of start my own business and uh, do some cool new things there. But that's kind of my academic background. And the other piece that a lot of people will know me from is in competing and strongman, which uh, I started when I went back to Springfield College as a professor. There were a number of students that were competing in strongman that I that were in the exercise science program, and they kind of talked me into 
trying it. And, um, you know, pretty quickly I saw that the sorts of weights and times that people were doing at the national and international level for 175 pound competitors were things that I, I thought I would be able to do. So I, uh, I just jumped into that, started competing in that sport, uh, went on to compete for a couple of world championships and, and um, in strongman at 175. And, uh, you know, it just, it's just been an, an interesting experience. You know, people ask me about my, my background or how I got into this field, and I don't think it really sounds like too many other people's experiences or, or, or tracks or anything like that. But um, I don't know. I just, I just sort of bump around and, and see things and try them. And, uh, no matter like anything that I try, I just do a hundred percent before you know it, you're a so-called like high level person in that if you just completely commit to it. Um, but I, that's, I guess, sort of a summary of, of my background in this. Great stuff. A question uh, Pat, that I ask everybody that comes onto the show is who has been the biggest influences on you, not only as a coach uh, and as a scientist within the um, strength and conditioning profession or training profession, but also as a human being, as a person? Sure. Um, and, you know, this is one of those ones I feel like I could I could talk forever about, so I won't. I'll, I'll try to be very brief, but, mm. you know, the people that I'll mention have just been tremendously influential for me, and I, I really wouldn't be anywhere without without the people that have kind of directed me and been influential, um, you know, uh, people, people that know me personally kind of know that when I was like late teens, early twenties, like I was just kind of a, a total mess of a person. Um, a lot of like substance abuse stuff, chemical dependency related stuff. And, uh, you know, I, I was able to, to get involved with, with mixed martial arts at that time in my life. And, uh, the coach that I had, John Burke was just like, I mean, the guy really did save my life in, in every conceivable way. Um, you know, he, he really provided me with like a good example of, of like how a man really conducts himself and, um, just being tough and like, dealing with adversity and making sure that you conduct yourself in, in, in a certain way and that you, you know, I would say like what he really taught me is that, you know, he got me to learn how to train really hard and how to focus on things to the highest possible level. And that was particularly, you know, with mixed martial arts. But then his big thing was always like, okay, so you figured out how to train and how to, be an athlete, like you need to take that same focus and apply it to every other element of your life. And if you can do that, I bet you'll end up being pretty successful because you can be pretty single-minded in training and you can work super hard in that area. Imagine what you could do if you did that with school or a job or something like that. Um, So, you know, if if I don't mention that guy in terms of of my life, then I I mean, I'm just crazy and totally missing the boat. Um, And from there, like professionally, it really all started with uh, Dr. Ellen Robinson at Bridgewater State College, who uh, is the coach of Robinson weightlifting in Massachusetts in the in the U.S., Um, you know, she she runs their Masters of Strength and Conditioning program there, and she's also an international level competitor in weightlifting. Um, you know, she's really one of the most incredible people that anybody could ever meet. Uh, from there, you know, professionally within the performance industry, um, I, I really started off looking at a lot of the West Side Marbell stuff, uh, getting into it. And then I started looking at Mike Boyle's stuff, which kind of sprung me over to looking at Gray Cook's stuff, Charlie Weingroff's stuff, um, met a lot of great like physical therapists in Massachusetts at that time, um, Connor Ryan, uh, Ramez Anton, like in, in Massachusetts. And, you know, those guys uh, were able to like help me find out who Bill Hartman is and all the IFAST guys. And, um, and then that sort of led me into the direction of, you know, I looked at DNS for a little bit, looked at PRI, 
uh, PRI has just been like this monster for me in terms of like exposing me to uh, the really what I think is the like a different mindset of being able to look at the human body, a different mindset in terms of like appreciating, uh, just thinking differently. Um, and, you know, from there, able to get glimpses into the the programming concepts from a lot of the Omega Wave people like uh, Val Masetkin, Roman Fulman, uh be able to look at, at those things in terms of like objective measurements and understanding training readiness. Uh, from there, kind of getting introduced to some of these incredible functional medicine doctors like Ben House, who, you know, is able to look at your blood work and is able to look at your genome and take a look at, you know, these underlying factors that are are probably driving the, the show more than most people in our industry could ever imagine. But uh, it's, you know, just, I, I love this stuff and, and every possible direction that you can look in is, is what I want to know about. Like, I want to know everything in terms of what's the best technical way to execute Olympic lifts. I want to know about methyl tags on a genome and what those mean in terms of the environment interacting with your natural inclinations towards existing. I want to know about blood work. I want to know about food. I want to know about sprint technique. I want to know about acetabulum is moving on femurs. I want to know about the differences in the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere of the brain. I want to know about sensory processing, motor pro I just want to know it all. You know, there's nothing I don't want to know. And I want to know all of it at the highest possible level I can. Um, because I think there's nothing I hate more than being pigeonholed into something, you know, like I, I've just got, I don't know. It's, I've almost got like a bad attitude about that. Like the moment you tell me that I'm this kind of guy is the moment I'm just going to spite you and purposely do something completely different just to prove to you that nothing is certain in this life, in this world, and that everything is, is probably worth taking a look at. And, um, and, and there are no rules, really. There's only self-imposed limitations. Sounds like you're, you're a man after my own heart, because I could definitely relate to all that. I'm, there's, like, my, my passion for so many different uh, fields is very similar to your own. So, and you always get sort of these guys saying, oh, you can't specialize in all these fields, or you must, like, just focus on one area. My, my kind of uh, rebuttal or my, uh, my, my tongue-in-cheek response is, I want to be a specialist of being a generalist. <laughs> yeah, I love that. You know, it's like, and I don't, I don't really understand why people say that. I think that it, it like the, I really think the secret of success and, and being high level is, is literally just reading books. Hmm. Like if you just read more books than anybody else, you'll probably be doing great. Um, and, and it's not that hard, you know, like, I don't, I feel like, um, the best thing I've found in the last, last couple of years is the audible app for my phone because it just reads the book to me now. So if I'm on my commute to work or if I'm doing any kind of like, uh, you know, just cardio exercise in the middle of the day, I've always got a book going and, um, you know, you can, you can tackle the fields of psychology or physiology or, uh, whatever it is you want to take a look at. You just, you just plug in, you just, you just kind of keep absorbing. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's just a lot of excuses that people give, I think, or, or they, they want things to be simple and they want things to fit into their current paradigm. They, people just want to be lazy and dogmatic. And I just want the opposite. I want to keep expanding and, and going harder and pushing further and being more and more uncomfortable all the time. Yeah. It, it reminds me like personally myself, like I fundamentally believe like that, you know, like everything is connected. Like if you break it down to quantum physics, everything's just energy and vibration. And at some fundamental level, everything is connected. And also a book that profoundly changed me over the last years was the book Mastery by Robert Greene. And mm. uh, he, in that book, he talks about this female. Now, I, I, it's been a while since I've read the book, but essentially she did like three masters and or two masters and a PhD in what seemed to be three completely unrelated fields. Like one was biology and the next one was like robotics. 
but yet like she uh, is like the top person at building the most lifelike robots because she studied such diverse fields or what seems to be diverse fields like of physiology and 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 science and then she went into robotics and mechanics and mechanical engineering or something like that and everyone was like why are you doing that like they don't seem to be compatible at all and then like when everyone saw like the robotics that she was working with were like oh my god like and from from that she was able to join dots that seems completely disjointed to most average human beings but now she's brought something into creation that was never been thought of before because she was able to join the dots of two what seemed to be or multiple fields that didn't seem to be connected together when really everything is connected together so i'm similar to you in that like i want to know as much as i possibly can because another thing too is you often see these people who are so pigeonholed and specialized in one area and you're just like if only you could just look outside your box and, yeah. and, and join the dot with that box over there like the profound impact you could do to the world because you're going to bring something to creation that hasn't been created before and that's what all the great thinkers essentially do they just they just think outside the box and that's one thing in, in mastering robert green it's just like these great people just have bigger peripheral vision like they're just not as tunnel vision mm. yeah that sounds um that sounds like a good one i i it's called mastery oh ma- oh you gotta read that sorry i thought you had you kind of went mm, at the start as in like a Reddit mastery by Robert Greene. It was actually Brett Bartholomew who put me on to Robert Greene. Robert Greene's written a number of books and he's also been a mentor to Ryan Holiday. Ryan Holiday wrote to Oxford is away and he recently has the ego is the enemy out. But uh, uh, Robert Greene was the man who wrote 50 Cent's book with him, 50 at Law, and he's also written the 33 Strategies of War and uh, Seduction and, or is it 33 Strategies of War? Something like that. And he's, he's written Seduction anyway and he's written a number of books. Um, but mastery is the one I, re- I read that back in like Christmas 2014 and like it profoundly changed me like because of that book right now that's why I'm going to I'm going to I have an internship at Altus at the end of this year in December like I'm, I'm leaving my job for three months and like spending a lot of money that I've saved up because I realized that like I want to master my field like mm, that's you know what like I, I think um you know I go to conferences and the number one thing that I, I do go on to these things is I look at the bibliography now or the reference sections that people give like yeah, yeah. I just want to know like what are the books that went into this thing that that created the the thought process for this and because you know again it like goes back to the books but you just get to spend so much time living in the thoughts of somebody that just went in on a subject yeah like the book books are a bargain like they're such a bargain people spend so much money like and i do too i spend a ton of money on going to conferences and things like that but the reason i do it is primarily to get the shortcuts on what books to read yeah (laughs) you know that's really kind of it like i want to know like hey what are the big hitters so i feel like doing this podcast and hearing about Robert Greene and Mastery, it's like, all right, now I'm, I'm excited. Like, you know, it's great to be able to share information with other people, but I just got a big time ticket out of this myself. So yeah. the, um, the, the other the other famous book he has is The 48 Laws of Power. That's the other very famous book he has, Robert Greene. But there's, there's really good interview with him on, on YouTube on London Real, really good. And he speaks about the whole process of how he wrote the book Mastery. And he, it was very funny. It was, it was kind of a bit ironic too in that, his publisher came around and said to him, you've got 10 weeks to write this book. And like Robert Greene lost his shit. Like he said, for two days, he was ringing the publisher and he's like, this is ridiculous. After all the success with the 50th law and all my other books. And he said, this is the way you're going to treat me. And then like he said, but the third day, he's like, right, I've just wasted two days that I potentially could have started on this book. And he just said that the 10 weeks was, he said it was actually, it was a blessing in disguise because he got so creative in that 10 weeks, like kind of Parkinson's law. Like when you have a deadline that you actually get more creative than if you didn't have a deadline. And he said, he, he just said he was in the flow state and he said it was the best writing. He said like every day, every, he was just in the zone. He was just like unbelievable. And I'm fascinated by creativity too. Like I look outside of, uh, I look into areas like um, one of my favorite musicians is Jack White. Like, and I'll just like, obviously you're the guest here, so I don't want to be speaking. But, uh, you know, Jack Jack White was, was talking about creativity and how he writes songs. And, and someone said to him like, you know, uh, how, how do you go about writing your songs? And Jack White goes, I don't write my songs. And then the person in film got very confused, thinking that he had a ghostwriter. Then and Jack goes, No, no. He's like, I do write my songs, okay? Like I write them, but he's like, they're not, they're not mine. Like he says, they're already out there in the universe, and I'm just the avenue that brings them into tangible creation. He's like, everything that has ever been created or ever will be created is already out there in the universe. The universe is, un, is unlimited potential. That's unconditional, unlimited potential. And Jack White was trying to get the, the point across that. Like my songs are already out there in creation, and I'm just a filter for the universe to bring them into creation. Like, so yeah. like 
I just think create like bringing things to creation, whether it's an artist or a song or some sports scientist discovering some something about the human body, whatever it is, it's just I it just blows my mind. Like, you know, it's it's so interesting. Like I um I'm working on a presentation I'm gonna do in September, and uh, it's at it's at a, a conference called the Beginner's Mind Retreat, cool. and it's being put on by uh, Ben House and Aaron Davis, and um. You know, a, a big part of the information I looked at was the the quantum physics worlds, mm. you know, and, and I read a few books to try to really figure out what's going on with that. And, um, you know, I read one book called The Field. Yeah. Lynn, yeah. Lynn, Lynn McTaggart. Yeah. And another book called The Big Picture by, I think the guy's name was Sean Carroll. And they're, they're totally opposite from each other. You know, wow. it's like. Uh, the big picture is like a very conservative one and the field is like completely out there and insane. Um, but it's, it's, it really is a legitimate, like you have to like get to the point where you respect the fact that quantum theory is the most tested scientific thing that's ever existed. You know, even, even more than evolution, like quantum physics is, the number one thing we can hang our hat on and say that this is the most scientifically valid thing we have ever seen from empirical study. Mm. And it's like, okay, well that's, that's insane to say that. And it's also like, and we've done things like build nuclear weapons and cell phones as a result of, of understanding the mathematics involved with, with the theoretical model that, that is the quantum world. And, and when you get into that stuff, it's like basically saying that the universe is this interconnected web of fields. Uh, Laplace, the French scientist, really was able to take Einstein's theories on relativity and turn them into these field theories. And fields are validated, as validated as anything can get. And, and it sort of leads you into understanding that it's like this kind of electromagnetic web that makes up the universe, almost like fascia making up the human body in mm. some ways. Um, and it's like, uh, like fields superimposed on other fields. There is in fact, no like space, space, like emptiness is not true. There's a connection between every molecular point in the universe. Now we can, we can extrapolate that to areas that are inappropriate. You know what I mean? Like you can say everything's quantum physics and that's kind of inappropriate. It's, it's like just because you know that uh, water is made up of hydrogens and oxygens like bound together at the level of quarks and things like that, it doesn't take away from the fact that water is wet. It's still a property that exists on like a larger emergent scale as compared to this tiny microscopic quantum world. But I, I think the big takeaway is what you're talking about with creativity is what what the, the theorists that use quantum information are saying is that, you know, information exists in these fields that we interact with and that it seems as though perhaps the more you allow yourself to just simply be open the more that that information can kind of flow through you as opposed to you really being the genesis, the creation of these things. Yeah. It's, it's receptiveness yeah. and allowing these things to simply take place as opposed to forcing the issue or singularly taking credit for it. And, and I do think like we don't really know, you know what I mean? These are all nice thoughts mm. at that point, Definitely. but there's something to that, I really think. Yeah, it's, it's uh, like a number of authors, and even I'm probably influenced to a degree by, by these authors. One particular author is a guy called Joseph Shilton Pierce. He's written some great books. One of my favorite books is called The Biology of Transcendence, and he speaks about the creative process too. And he speaks about it as a dualistic process. And, you know, like a lot of the great sort of leaders um, that, that have ever been in, in terms of the human species, like they, they nearly always come back to like that the universe is a dualistic model, you know, day, night, man, woman, hot, cold. And Shilton Pierce talks about this creator creative dynamic that you and the universe work in conjunction together, 
to bring things into creation. So like the, the as you said, it's polarity. Like it's it's a negative looking for a positive charge or a positive looking for a negative charge. Um, you know, so the universe is like, I have this potential. Who like and who who like filter through? Who's going to be my muse to bring this into tangible creation and bring it and give it to the give it to the world as a gift? And that's actually another thing that Jack White said too. He's like, when I write a song and bring it into creation and give it to the world, he's like, then it's up to every individual to interpretate that song and love it in whichever way they want. He's like, it's not it's not mine anymore. I don't own it. He's like, I just brought it into creation and now it's yours. It's your gift. Do do it whatever you want. Love it, like it, hate it. Uh, or and, and if you do love it, love it for different reasons. Like we all love like similar songs for different reasons. Like, oh, that song means that to me, and that song meant me was means brings me back to this time in my life, sort of thing. Like so, but yeah, it's, it's creativity is just it's just amazing. But what the part you said where you need to like clear your mind, empty your mind, that's another part. Sheldon Pierce speaks about. There's a there was a woman called uh, Lasky Lasky I think, and she had a sort of it was called Lasky's Eureka moment, and she, basically it was like this six step process that everyone goes through in terms of, of a, like a breakthrough in terms of creation and he gave like he gives like this analogy of this mathematician hamilton and essentially the six steps are like you fall in love with the field step two is you accumulate all this knowledge step three is you work on a problem step four is you give up on the problem you just you, it's too hard and you just give up and then step five is you get the eureka moment because step four you cleared your mind because you just gave up you, you allowed your brain to be empty and let the universe like hit that polarity which it and then step six is then trying to trying to explain it to the world because there's no reference point. It's, yeah. it's the first time it was ever brought into awareness, like relativity with Einstein. Everyone's like, "Well, there's no science behind it." It's like because it's never been around. There's nothing. There's no foundation for it. <laughs> yeah, it's. Uh, I, I mean, it's funny because it's like these are the things I spend my day thinking about. In, in truth, like as opposed to you know probably when I was 25 and I spent my days thinking about like. Uh, you know, squatting and sprinting. Yeah. And I still, I still think about those things. Yeah, me it's just too. That yeah. I, I don't know. It's just a different frame, uh, framework that I, I go about thinking about it through. Yeah. You know. Well, we, we've, we've definitely uh, went a little bit off there, but that was all great stuff. That's the shit I want to talk about as well. So, but Pat, uh, back to back to kind of the the topics that that I was talking to beforehand. Yeah. Um. Another question I ask all my guests too is in terms of just the physical preparation profession, you know, the sports science profession, strength and profession, whatever, whatever titles you want to put on it, the fitness industry as a whole, what are some of the uh, worst things and also some of the best things you're seeing in the industry? And with the worst things, what are some of the solutions you may put forward? Okay. I, I think that's a great question. And, um, you, you know, I think that, like certain words strike me, like I resonate with them. And I think the word differentiation is a word that, that resonates with me. And I think that people struggle with that in, in like, a, in a lot of ways, you know, like a, a lot of guys that have done a ton of strength training, like traditional, like if you trained under like nineties models, strength and conditioning stuff, which would be like power lift and sprint or, Olympic lift and sprint and that's all you really need to do like you're probably locked up in your body You're probably like a creature of sagittalism and you have no ability to differentiate your joints from one another um, Allowing a pelvis to move in a frontal plane and a rib cage to move in a transverse plane. It probably just doesn't happen for you um, You know, so it's kind of like the body needs to be able to differentiate joints from one another but then in another direction, it's like from a thought process in coaching, you need to be able to differentiate. Like it's, it's this concept of like sort of this weird hybrid mixture of PT and training living together in this new era, this new, this new world of, of performance training. And, uh, and I don't think we necessarily know what we're doing with that stuff in a lot of ways. And, and maybe I say this because like I'm just working as an independent trainer in New York City right now while some other things are kind of coming together in, in other like business realms of my life. But I just see like I see some trainers that literally just like do corrective exercises with clients the entire time. But they're really terrible corrective exercises. It'll be like 45 minutes of overhead squatting with a dowel. And with like a female client that's like a pelvic floor patient, basically, and just literally watching like a complete inability to control a pelvis 
and this trainer just insistently like demanding that the person do it over and over again and it looks exactly the same every time and they just don't know what they're doing like they have no clue like I'm, I'm, I'm looking at this person's feet and they're just like completely unable to to own their feet against their ground and push the earth with their feet and uh, and they're like coaching them at all the wrong joints and all the wrong things and it's probably a terrible exercise selection for them and there's no fitness that ever gets developed so it's just like this complete waste of time where it was like really bad attempt to try to incorporate physical therapy concepts in a personal training setting where no fitness was developed for someone that was like overweight weak and um and and just like it was just it's just like this cluelessness being demonstrated so it's like if you're not going to have this unbelievably in-depth level of biomechanical and neurological knowledge at least give someone a great fitness experience um you know like and, and i think that generally speaking the if you just create really high levels of fitness in someone that you're working with, you're probably going to do more for them than most physical therapy related drills will anyways. Um, it's kind of like, you know, if I'm working with people, there's I, like, I've literally just thrown out so many things that I think are kind of irrelevant or don't matter that much at this point. Like, there's almost no warm up anymore for, for me, except for like, we're going to just do the things that you're going to do in training lighter and like a little bit slower just to get used to those movements. Uh, and then once, once you've warmed up, uh, with heat as the primary emphasis I'm trying to get for you, we're going to train really hard and I'm going to maximize the amount of time that you have an elevated heart rate. I'm going to maximize the number of high quality repetitions you're going to do. I'm, I'm a fitness person. Like I'm driving fitness into you. The only times that I, that you would really see me doing what you would think of as like corrective exercises for people. Like I might, if, if somebody's like complaining of something that's bothering them in a nagging way, we're going to, we're going to take a session and we're going to like knock that thing completely out of you so that the next time you come back in, it's just all fitness all the time. Um, or, you know, if, if I'm using something like the statodynamic method, the, the tempo-related training, things like um, slow-twitch oxidative development exercises with, um, let's say, the push-up where it's two to four seconds down, two to four seconds up, that's where I might sneak in, like, sensory motor biomechanics pieces Um but, you know, it's like I would just say people don't have this differentiation switch. They, they don't understand context, time and place or the appropriate environment for those things. Like if somebody's hurt that I'm working with, I'm sending them to work with the resilient physical therapy guys because that's the appropriate environment and context and professional to deal with that. Um, once and, and they go there one time and those guys are unbelievable they fix them up right away and i get the person right back and then it's fitness again and um you know it's it's like fitness is is complex enough and i just think fitness people should get as good as they possibly can in fitness i think that they should learn everything they possibly can about the rehabilitation models and you know, biomechanics and pain science and neurology. But I, I really do think that, um, you know, it's a bit of a fool's errand to try to wear all the hats and to mix all the hats together because you just get this real kind of crap end product where the person doesn't really improve fitness all that much. Awesome, awesome answer. And in terms of that, so, so that, that's a problem and you also gave a solution. So in terms of the good things you're seeing currently in, in the profession, what would you say? I think, I think that there's, uh, you know, it's, it's funny. Like, uh, you go back to these physics topics and, and entropy is a big topic, you know, like, uh, entropy we typically think of as, as just the universe kind of heading towards disorder. And we don't really know what that actually means, but, you know, physicists actually think that time 
is 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 kind of a construct that lives within the overall entity of, of entropy. So the past we can recognize as the past because it's a lower entropy state, and the future is a higher entropy state. And we we it's hard to predict what higher entropy is going to be. It's just there's as time progresses, variability will increase because there's more possibilities and more. Um, chaos as we move towards the future and it's at a fairly significant ratio where the future is much higher entropy than the past was so we're we're going to continue to see more and more different things popping up in every the world will be harder and harder to predict as time goes on and the fitness industry is no different so you know i i was literally walking by a gold's gym the other day and there was surfboard classes in there um, you know, there's, there's, there's so many things that exist already and the number of things will simply increase more and more and more and more. And there's no stopping that. Like people that get upset that dumb fads exist, it's going to get worse. There's no possible way that it won't. Um, I would, I would just say that like, uh, ultimately the industry in a short period of time, I think will be very different from what any of us think it actually is. Um, the moment that you think you're going to be able to predict what's going to happen is probably the moment you should just hang it up and say like, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm lost, I'm clueless. So it's, it's, it's really, I would say it's an impossible question to actually answer in terms of like, what do I think are the good things that are currently happening? I just think that it's like things exist and things are going to be different. And the only chance you have of being any good is, is just to try to master what it is you're currently working on. Um, if I was going to try to give like some sort of a cookie cutter answer to this, like what's good, like I, I would say that I think that from like a program design perspective, that the like the Joel Jameson model of the world, the Val Nasedkin model, the ability to use Omega Wave and um, and look at objective markers, that's becoming more and more of a thing. You know, GPS existing, being able to give like legitimate feedback um, to guide decisions. It's just it's just more informed decision making exists on what to do with people um that also gives you more buy-in from the people that you're working with that's probably as big a a piece with objective data as anything like if if i'm able to show you your body and demonstrate your body's responses to things you're going to have much more buy-in in the process and the more buy-in you have in the process the harder you work and the harder you work the better the results will be um that kind of stuff. It's probably a, a terrible answer, a useless sort of answer for the question you had, but it's um, it's a difficult concept to be able to speak intelligently to. No, that's absolutely perfect. I, I appreciate that answer. So, Pat, a bit, the big question, or, or one of the big questions I wanted to ask you, and as I said offline, this is one you can just go for as long as you want in this. So, I'm always, one thing before I ask it, I'm always worried about how to ask this question. So, some people will ask us, What's your philosophy of training? And then you'll always get the coach, like, they'll say, I don't have a philosophy, I have principles that guide my training. So whatever fucking way you want to word it. <laughs> yeah. You know, so I, I just call it the training process. Like, so when, when, when I speak about the training process, like, what do you think of? How do you look at the training process? So kind of I said offline, you get somebody, let's just say for purely hypothetical reasons, you get a kid that comes in, male or female, and it's like, you have this athlete for the next 10 years. What, okay, what, what's what's going down? How how old are they? Uh, they're young, like you, ten years old, we'll say. Okay, and do they have a a particular sport that they're they're looking at? Um, I mean, I can leave that up to you. I mean, this is this is hypothetical. So I suppose in in America, I mean, you I mean it's going to be what football, baseball, basketball, or hockey, really, isn't it? Yeah, why don't we go with football? Okay, let's go football. And they're ten years old. That's, that's pretty good. Uh, I'm only choosing that because I feel like football is the sport that I associate more with training 
and uh, and your traditional kind of strength and conditioning model than any other sport in yeah. the U.S. Oh, that's cool. So I've got a ten-year-old that that just walked in the door, and um, and let's just say that it's a typical situation in the states where ten-year-old athletic child probably going to have lunatic parents that um, if they're bringing to them that kid to me at ten. They probably think that the kid is going to go to the NFL and um, that everything matters right now and that there has to be this perfect developmental program for a 10-year-old to ensure that the success will manifest itself when, when they're an adult in their prime, okay? So number one, like I just think like have any other people – like I'm always looking for precedent-setting cases. Has anyone else that's been smart – examine what happens when you start off with 10-year-olds and look to develop them long-term for the highest athletic peak that you can get. And the answer is yes. And fortunately for us, like the Eastern Bloc countries back in the day, were actually able to do this from a fairly empirical process. And they were able to take, uh, you know, you're living in Soviet Russia and things are hard. You know, you're probably a serf and your parents are farmers and uh, you get like rations of like, a, you know, a potato a day and uh, life is hard. And it's just kind of if someone comes along and says, hey, we think your 10 year old is actually athletic. Uh, we want to take him to the training barracks and have him develop into an incredible athlete. That's probably like a gift from God that's being bestowed upon you. Um, and you're, you're going to have this kid go off to the central physical culture centers in, in Russia, and they're going to start measuring things, you know, and, and I believe if you look at some of those multi-year developmental books and, uh, the Verkoshansky and Sif and Medvedev kinds of books, uh, it's been a while since I read those things, I read those in the early two thousands, but I remember most of these things. They, they're going to. They're going to do, you know, things like measure circumferences and take a look at whatever the technology had available for them. Like, generally speaking, if I've got a kid who's got big, thick ankles and calves and wrists and forearms, hey, maybe this kid's going to go more towards the direction of weightlifting and shot putting rather than figure skating and tennis. If I've got a kid who's anthropometrics suggest that they've got a short torso and long limbs and maybe I've got a runner on my hand, <laughs> you know? So it's like, uh, I'm going to take a look at the anthropometrics, uh, if I'm in Russia and have that current level of technology. Now I'm not in Russia anymore and I've got way better tools at my disposal, but I'm definitely going to take a look at anthropometrics because anthropometrics are still probably the best predictor of what you're going to do. Like I'm five foot six and I weigh 200 pounds. I don't think basketball is a good choice. So if this kid actually wants to play football, uh, you know, what are the bodies that make sense for football? Like if, if I'm looking at someone who's probably going to develop into a five foot, 1145 pound adult, well, this is a bad choice. This, this, this kid's going to suffer and probably get broken as a result of this attempt. So let's do him a favor and redirect him. But let's just say I'm looking at a kid, a 10-year-old, and, uh, you know, the old saying of, like, big paws on a puppy, probably going to be a big dog. Uh, this, does this kid have big hands and feet? If so, you know, maybe I've got a miniature Rob Gronkowski on my hands. Um, you know, if you want like Rob Gronkowski, I don't know how well you, you follow American football, but he's clearly the best tight end. And there's a great video of him as a 5-year-old in a pinata thing in his kindergarten and he just wails this pinata and is standing like a foot and a half taller than the other kids and literally just catches all the candy falling out of it and just takes it off by himself. <laughs> so it's kind of like, you know, if, if I see that walk in and like the anthropometrics are in like the 99th percentile in every possible way, I think to myself, well, there's a point to this, you know, there's uh, otherwise it's like, if the anthropometrics don't make sense, it's like I'm going to do my best to redirect this person towards like being a good human being 
and uh, and all that kind of stuff. But I, I get big paws on a puppy, and I'm going to start thinking about actually really developing this and, and going with it. Now, I also have the ability at this point to just do a very simple saliva sample and send that thing off to get the genome sequenced. All right, and then that genome comes back, and I get a ton of information. And as the genetic information gets better and better, as they do more research, I'm going to know more and more and more about this person. So I can take a look at the markers and SNPs that will be associated with whether or not this is a fast-twitch-driven individual. And if it's not, well, you know, maybe this kid should take a look at cross-country running or skiing or, um, you know, some other activity. Um, you know, I, I, I can also, interestingly enough, because I've, I've been able to, to look at some of these genetic things, like you get, a, you get a percentage of how much of that genome is actually made up of the Neanderthal uh, contributions to the human genome. And, uh, you know, quite honestly, if you've got more Neanderthal genetics going on in you, you probably have a better opportunity to develop a tremendous amount of muscle mass. Uh, so if I've got a fast twitch Neanderthal kind of kid looking at me, um, I, I think that all of a sudden, if they've got big hands and big feet and good anthropometrics, and then that presents itself to me, I've got something. Um, so now I'm, I'm actually going to say to myself, I've got, I've got a kid whose genetic information is coming back saying it's pretty strong. Um, you know, they're, they're going to have the right dimensions and all that kind of stuff. So I actually have to start the process of training this person. Where do I actually start? And the place that I start is with the subconscious brain, easily number one. And what that means is I'm actually just going to build habits. I've got this great opportunity to start the formation of appropriate habits that I can ultimately drive towards the number of habits that exist in someone's daily life that would give them the potential to have the kind of training volume that would lead towards world-class abilities. So a great book on this is The Power of Habit, and you know the section I'm thinking of in particular is the Michael Phelps section, where they started him off as a young kid. The coach literally just recorded this like stretching program that he wanted uh, young Michael Phelps to do every night before he went to bed. And that's, that's it. That's where they started from. Michael Phelps would listen to this thing and it would guide him through like, you know, moving every joint in his body and feeling it and getting associated with it. And before you know it, it's just a habit. Like he, this is just what he does every night before he goes to bed. And then the next thing you do is you plug in another habit. And this is the thing that you're going to do every morning uh, to start off your day. Then it's just a process of more and more habits, but you start with one and you just let that thing develop for the course of weeks. And, you know, if you generally just do a behavior over and over again for somewhere around like 28 to 35 days, you don't have to think about it after that time point. You just do it. So it's, it's a case of like just looking at the entire training process. Like, I don't need this kid to lift heavy weights at 10 years old. That's, that's stupid. I don't need this kid to, um, give me the highest level of physiological output for, for like fitness parameters. That's really stupid. The only thing I need this kid to do is develop as many good habits as possible. So when I think of the training world, I do still think of like, there's strength training, there's uh, heavy ballistic training that you would typically lump into the category of Olympic lifting. There is, uh, you know, light ballistic training, which is kind of like you're jumping and throwing. There's true plyometrics, which is the quick eccentric elastic stuff. There is, um, you know, kind of assistance work, repeated effort method stuff. That's that's sort of my, my big rocks in the strength world. And then I've got these these big rocks in the in the energy system development piece, which would be uh, you know some kind of oxidative stuff. I've got to develop the habit of like, hey, at least once a week or so, 
you're going to need to do some something that resembles a steady state cardiovascular kind of exercise protocol. Uh, it, we also have like glycolytic domains. At some point, you're going to need to know what it feels like to do things that are uh, heat oriented and acidic oriented. Uh, we have to be able to look at other things in terms of speed development. Like the, the, the kid has to learn what certain drills feel like that are in the acceleration phase. They need to understand, uh, you know, top speed activities. They need to understand like special endurance running. They also need to understand change of direction things. Um, you know, I mean, I'm just saying like there's a lot of pieces that go into your typical training day uh, and the training week and all of the variables that you have to develop in the big picture as well. So it's not like I'm going to push these things to really physically develop them at a high level. I'm literally just introducing each piece and I'm not going to introduce all of them at once. I'm going to introduce them one at a time. And I'm going to, and this is an ideal world, you know what I mean? This is probably not going to happen because I've probably got uh, crazy parents who are watching internet videos and want everything all at once and max loads and sprinting with parachutes and this, that, and the other thing. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep it really simple, and it's literally habit formation and all of the variables that go into training one at a time. And I'm, I'm also going to encourage the biggest piece in the whole puzzle, which is play. Um, you know, the, the children need to play uh, more than anything. And, and there's, there's two reasons why they need to play that jump out at me. Number one, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of funny, like, if, I know a few people that have sort of done this with, with table tests. You know, like your joint range of motion as well as sensory motor table tests. Um, test, a, test a kid, like a 10-year-old with crazy parents. You'll probably see that they've got joints that are all locked up. Have them play for 20 minutes, bring them back to the table, and you'll probably see all those table tests improve. The intervention was literally play. And then you'll have parents be like, well, how many sets and reps of this play do they need to do? And it's like, you don't get it. Like, they need to play. Um because it just it, it links all of the mammalian neuromuscular, neuromotor, sensory motor, emotional motor uh, pieces together in the appropriate way that it was originally organically meant to develop. Um, and the other piece with play is you can't simulate that kind of volume in training. Like children need volume. They don't need high intensity. Volume is the appropriate variable for, for children. And the only way they're going to get that much volume is if they enjoy what they're doing. And if they enjoy what they're doing, they'll keep doing it. And, and look, like this is, it's a whole other rabbit hole that you go into when people actually enjoy movement. But generally speaking, the more you enjoy movement, the more you're going to secrete dopamine, the more dopamine you secrete, the more that you're going to have neuroplastic remodeling take place, the more that you're playing, the more variable the joint motions will be. The, therefore, it's like the the uh, the motivation motor system, which is kind of integrated with dopamine as the neurotransmitter. You're going to neuroplastically reinforce joint movement variability through dopaminergic means by encouraging more and more play in children. Um, so it's like that is the single most important variable that I would focus on from an actual training perspective is encouraging play while simultaneously teaching the, the subconscious ultimately habits that will come into the training sphere eventually. Um, so I've, I've got this, this kid who I have play in, in unsupervised environments as much as possible. And I'm telling you, if you read some of these old Russian things and you see what, what, they, what they did was, um, you know, number one, they did it experimentally where they were able to divide children into two groups. One that was focused on a singular sport at a young age and one that allowed them to 
you know, just do variable sports and develop at a more organic level. And what they saw was that the children that specialized early would have these amazing results. Like they would be like international masters of sports at like age 15, 16, and that the other kids that were doing all kinds of other stuff, they weren't able to keep pace at that age. Unfortunately, they started seeing like high rates of burnout. But I mean, who cares about that? Like when you get to the age of 18, the peak ability of the early specializers was well below the peak ability of the generalists at the young age um, who then specialized a little bit later. So it's like a total no-brainer from just empirical models on this stuff that you want to encourage variability for extended periods of time for, for the majority of athletes uh, until they get to a critical age. And those critical ages differ between different sports. Like if I have a female tennis player, I'm going to need to specialize them younger than, let's say, like a, uh, a heavyweight wrestler. But... Um, you know, it's very specific. So if I'm looking at a football player, I don't particularly want to specialize that individual until probably 18 to 20 years old. I want them to develop very variably up to that point. Um, you know, at, at a certain point, though, I, I definitely need to go specific. So if I'm, if I'm talking about a football player who... From the ages of 10 to 18, I've allowed them to play as many different sports as I possibly can in generally unsupervised play, organic human activity models. Um, I have not done anything that I would really consider to be true strength development. I haven't done anything that I would consider to be true tissue development of that individual. Um, I would allow the natural growth processes inherent in the genome to simply manifest themselves unperturbed or disturbed from really my external influences. I want to maximize the already existing internal forces that will grow a body as best as possible. Uh, you know, it's like, I want to look at this from a timing perspective, like tissues will grow simply by leaving a young human alone. And I want to let those tissues grow as normally as possible. And then once they've kind of reached this end point of normal tissue growth, now I'll interject with, uh, with training strategies that will grow tissues above and beyond uh, that point. You know, now hypertrophy will probably be a, a significantly important thing and hypertrophy driven through a loaded exercise, especially for American football. Uh, so they've got great habits for lifting. Like they know how to Olympic lift. They know how to squat. They know how to do uh, core training. They know how to flex. They know how to extend. They know how to move in the frontal plane. They know how to move in the transverse plane. They know how to differentiate their joints. They've developed the habits of like understanding how to do uh, aerobic development exercise, glycolytic development exercise, phosphagen development exercise. Now I'll actually uh, develop these things. So, uh, you know, if, if people want a pretty good idea of the categorization of all of these things that exist in my mind, I wrote an article for Rebel Performance called The Cloud Atlas of Program Design, where I, I just go through and take training and break it down in like a taxonomy type of way where it's like if I'm looking at exercise from the biggest of big pictures, I've got kingdoms of exercise, and those kingdoms I break down into variability, capacity, and power. So I want to stay in the kingdom of variability until the critical age for the sport, and I'm saying the critical age for football is probably going to be between 17 and 20 in my mind. Uh, and that's just a pure guess, okay? But once I, I reach that critical age, now the thing that I'm going to move into from a kingdom perspective is going to be capacity. And when I think of capacity from a strength training perspective, I think of lots and lots of volume. So, um, you know, I'm going to maintain 
the variability element, which was developed at the appropriate time, while I focus on capacity. So they're going to do a lot of different kinds of exercise. You know, I might do big circuits with 10 different kinds of exercises in this, and they're going to work in work-to-rest ratios that would be more towards the line of hypertrophy, um, you know, with just mixed movements. Uh, from the from the other training modalities like cardiorespiratory development, I'm going to again go with mixed modalities. While I have a like, it would be block training from the way I would lay it out. I would do blocks where I would develop the cardiorespiratory system while simply maintaining the the neuromuscular strength and power systems, and then I would shift blocks and I would develop uh, power at certain points and I would develop strength at certain points. And I would try to follow previous models that give me the most oper- like the most appropriate sequential development scheme, uh, which would come from like the Verkoshansky stuff and his uh, his guide for coaches. It's a great book, but um, you know I'm I'm going to ultimately streamline this individual uh, through their capacity development uh, after probably two or three years of capacity oriented training which is about the timeline that Zatsiorski recommends in Science and Practice of Strength Training, I'll ultimately move into the kingdom of power development. And uh, power, I think of, you know, I think people totally don't get that, that, that variable, but I literally just look at power as being like specificity of energy system and velocities for the sport that you choose to play in. So I'm going to make the training ultimately when this individual is like, 22, 24 years old, heading towards the NFL, they're going to to be training in power. They're going to train, like if I'm designing um, change of direction or like short speed drills, and let's say this individual is a defensive end, I'm going to study all of their game film, and I'm going to actually analyze the routes that they take in rushing the quarterback. And their drills will be speed and agility drills that actually replicate the exact foot pattern uh, patterning of their of their routes they would take to the to the quarterback. Like I'm not going to waste my time doing like five ten five drills. We're going to train the sport movements that you do, and I'm going to get as close as I possibly can to exactly what you do in your sport. Uh, you're lifting will be in the energy system domains that, that kind of correspond to like aerobic, alactic and fit into like the play clock and the number of seconds that a play typically lasts in the NFL. Um, you know, it, it really is just just that. And, and while I'm developing these very specific things for this incredibly high level specialized creature, I will maintain variability so that they have just enough variability in terms of their overall fitness and joint movement capabilities. And I'll also keep capacity at the level of just enough. Like if this guy's got a resting heart rate of 50 beats per minute, I don't need to inundate them with hours of aerobic training a week. At that point, it would just be kind of like a nonspecific overtraining that's not not leading me in any kind of direction. Um, you know, I, I think that that's the, the primary thing I would – I would definitely, as an as a advanced athlete, monitor that person in terms of like measuring blood. Um, I would take a look at the number of methyl tags that they're they're adding onto their genetic markers. I would definitely take a look at um, omega wave data or whatever else is coming out, simply because uh, you know there's. There's a point at which, like, I can train you harder and harder and harder, and and the results might get, like, micro better, but it's also like I would be driving so much oxidative stress into your organism that I might be killing you at a faster rate, and you might die at, like, 65 instead of living to 75. So I, I I would look at, like, where is this diminishing returns coming in, and, and can I maximize your longevity as a human being so that once your your career is over, I haven't taken years off your life? Um, that's, you know, it's, it's always hard to really kind of like uh, summarize these things. But I think those are 
those are some of the big things that I typically am thinking about. Of course, like getting them into specific realms and writing them on paper and, you know, all of the details associated with it or where the real work comes in. But uh, that's the kind of paradigm I've got in my head. That's it for part one, guys. Make sure you come back and check out part two when it comes out. Until then, I'll talk to you soon. Take care and stay strong. Thank you.